0: Hello, my name is Ian Drake and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Kimberly Brownlee. She is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms. Kimberly, thank you. thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: It's my pleasure, Ian. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, this is a monograph on what you have characterized as an argument in favor of a human right against social deprivation. So you talk about uh, the underpinnings of this right, and you explain it and defend it, but uh, I want you to start off with telling us why you felt that a book on, uh, or why you felt that it was important to make an argument in favor of such a right.
1: The idea for the book uh, developed after I read a New Yorker article by uh, Tul Gawandi in 2009. He wrote an article called Hell Hole, where he was looking at maximum security prisons in the United States, and he argued that being held in solitary confinement is essentially torture, and he looked at um, the experiences that other people uh, have had in, in extreme isolation where, where it's not coercive. So the solo sailor who sails around the world, the astronaut who goes into space, the military personnel who spend time in isolation. And his interviews with them and the other research he did showed that they found not the 50-foot waves or the illness, the hardest part, it was the isolation. It was being alone and feeling alone. And so he his thought was when we put someone into solitary confinement, we force them to be alone. We force them to wait impotently for someone to come to them. Um, we deny them so many goods that we take for granted outside of isolation. And I found this article very inspiring, but also incomplete and my thought was that if someone had the military training or the monastic training that enabled them to not find this torturous you know to to manage to get by in isolation or perhaps even to thrive in you know contemplative solitude exceptional people they'd have to be they would still be experiencing a human rights violation and that's because we are deeply social we uh, have the longest period of abject dependency of any species. So you know, we are children for a very long time. We spend most of our waking hours with other people. Um, according to psychologists, we, we actually like that better. We like being with other people more than being alone. And you know, our brains are, are programmed to think about other people, to think about our social needs, our social networks. And so, so the the idea for the book really started with a reaction to this article that it was you know, it was onto something really important to highlight that social depra- uh, solitary confinement can be can feel like torture, can be torturous, but that it would still be a human rights issue even if it weren't.
0: So ultimately, this comes back to it. That in your final chapter, you talk about prisons in particular and solitary confinement. And that's a very special population. There are arguments for and against the use of solitary confinement. But before we get to that, uh, the vast majority of your book, 90%, I guess, of your book, is uh, not about prisoners, but about individuals in a variety of different contexts. And when I was reading it, I thought about uh, what in some way is one of the implicit uh, understandings and norms that we get from the ancient philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, which is that we are social creatures. Um, but your book, it seems to me in some ways, and I'm, there is a question in this, it, it seems to me that your book in some ways would not have been possible but for modern psychological science. Do you agree with that?
1: I, I think that's right. So, so uh, you know, a very well-known thought from Aristotle, which I, you know, I, I reference, uh, that he said, without friends, we would not choose to live, even if we had all the other goods um so so you know and western western moral philosophy has has appreciated this this thought you know sort of from from ancient ancient times but it's it's not always forefronted um or or there's sort of there's lip service paid to this idea that we're deeply social but then we have this image of you know sort of the 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 independent individualist the the rational person who can choose to engage but can also choose not to engage the person who can exercise freedom of association and get by with others. And um, much more recent work, particularly feminist philosophical work, has stressed that actually autonomy requires interdependence, uh, that we are fundamentally relational. And... um, and now the psychology work is is starting to, to back that up. Uh, there, there's very interesting work done by, um, by Matthew Lieberman, uh, by John Cachopo, and others, uh, Pamela Quartal, Louise Hockley, and and they essentially show that the 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 most important needs we have. Are our social needs um, you know that that we you know we will not develop as children unless we are nurtured and cared for by a small set of persistent caregivers um, we won't get our physical and subsistence need needs met unless we are protected by others when we're adults we won't access resources we won't have access to many of the great goods in life unless we are interconnected with others and then as we age we return again to a state of dependency um, where we, we need other people in order to survive. And and all of the all of what I've just said that's framed still in fairly individualistic language. But the the reality is that that we are in a way much more a we than an I and a you who, who come together. That um, you know we live our lives collectively. Uh, we we depend on each other to to be who we are essentially.
0: And so. The deprivation that you're arguing against, you couch it in the form of rights. So throughout the book, you describe the conclusion is that there is a right to something. So what do you mean? Right is a word that could have multiple meanings. So what is it that you mean when you say that we ultimately have a right against social deprivation? We can talk about social deprivation uh, in greater detail, but what's the right part of that?
1: So it, this is this is a human right in in my view so it you know the, the rights come in in different flavors they are the rights that we get you know when someone makes a promise uh, you know you promise to meet me at three o'clock I, I have some some claim some some right that you will honor that promise and and you know and meet me at three o'clock that is that is absolutely not a, a human right a human right. Is uh, first of all, it, it identifies a fundamental human need, a fundamental human interest. So, our you know, we have an interest in education, we have an interest in shelter, we have an interest in being able to vote, um, being able to practice our religion, being able to move freely. So, so that's the first test. You know, is there a fundamental interest on the table? And the the second test is it is this fundamental interest one that needs protection so and and so in a way the the list of human rights has to be responsive to our circumstances um you know so at the very abstract level we could identify some things that are con- constants you know the the right to life the right to physical security uh the right to have basic uh, substance and shelter needs met but other rights like a right to breathable air we haven't actually spent much time Focusing on that right, we haven't in a way needed to enumerate it because until fairly recently, you know, this one hasn't been under threat. But as you know, as the climate crisis becomes more extreme, it becomes more important to start identifying that kind of right. Now, in the case of our our social needs, uh, the the human right against social deprivation, I I formulated that right in negative language, a right against a particular privation but you could formulate it positively as a right to have adequate access to inclusion, a right to have decent social access. Um, And, uh, and I think if I were to write the book again, I I might take that more positive language because we don't want to forget that there are positive duties that correlate with this right. Um, So that's why we talk about, you know, freedom from poverty. It's, it's, it's meant to, or your right to be free from poverty is meant to be a little less negative um, in formulation than than other ways you might put it. Uh, so, so, so human rights are very special. They're the brute moral minimum. Uh, these are the most basic things we owe to each other as human beings. And so, so that's the kind of right I have in mind um, when I'm talking about social deprivation.
0: Of course, you've got two different notions of the right there. On the one hand, you, you said you, as you've written the book, it's um, in terms of preventing the deprivation of human connectedness and or interactions. And so that's a right to not have something forbidden to you or taken away from you. But on the other hand, if you wrote it differently, if you wrote, rewrote the book, you might write it in, as you say, a positive sense, which sounds like it's a different way of construing a right, which is a an entitlement to something, to something to be provided to you, not merely to be uh, protected from deprivation, say, like in the context of a a prisoner in solitary confinement in a prison, but rather some kind of affirmative entitlement to connectedness. And that, it seems to me that that's not merely the flip side of the same coin, but it entails uh, certain obligations that may not be entailed if you simply have a deprivation of a right that you're concerned with. Do you agree with that?
1: So so most human, if not all human rights, actually have positive elements to them. Uh, so the right to life isn't just a right not to be killed. Um, you know, Henry Shue highlighted this point very well in his, in his book Basic Rights, and it's now the 40th anniversary of the publication of, of that book, and he's got a new edition out to... to uh, to honor that. And so, so the, the right to life, it's not just a right not to be killed. It's also a right that there be a functioning law enforcement system, there be a functioning police force that will actually actively help to protect your life from you know, third parties, from other threats to your life. Uh, you know, the sa- same with the, the right um, you know, to, for due process. That requires a very expensive legal and political apparatus to be in place. There are positive duties uh, that the state has to provide mechanisms to ensure you can have due process. Uh, you know, the right to vote, freedom of movement, all of these have hidden or not so hidden positive sides to them. So I think the, the takeaway is that all human rights actually turn out to be expensive. It's not just the ones that, that look expensive on their face. You know, the, the right to be free from poverty, the right to education, right to health, you know, they look expensive. We have to have an education system, healthcare system, and so on. But these other ones are also expensive.
0: So in terms of the flip side of deprivation, what then is the, how would we describe the affirmative right, the positive right? Yeah. Is it social connectedness? Is it the ability to interact? Uh, you go into great depth in exploring the different Kinds of interactions that people might have in various hypothetical situations. You use a lot of literature as well uh, To use scenarios from fictional works um, So what is the affirmative or positive description of the right that you're talking about?
1: So it depends the the, the positive element depends a little bit on on who you are um, or, or what stage of life you're at so if you're a baby this the positive side is persistent caring nurturing. Um, I stop short of saying you have a right to be loved in childhood, uh, but uh, another philosopher Matthew Liao he has written a book called The Right to Be Loved, where he argues that we do have a human right during childhood to be loved, and so not just to be nurtured and cared for and fed and socialized, but to be cared for by people who have um an overall positive affectionate attitude toward us who want to be close to us who value us for our own sake there, you know there are strong emotional components to that so I, I stopped short of that but you know certainly hood babyhood childhood you have very strong positive rights to be nurtured by a small set of caregivers when you're uh when you become an adult it depends again on how your life is going, what stage you're at. So we all experience moments of extreme dependency, um, illness, injury, loss of employment, migration, um, a period in prison, returning to society. Uh, There there are many, giving birth, facing the death of a loved one, grieving. There are many moments in our lives where we need positive support, positive provision. And then there's, uh, you know, f- for some people, those those moments of support requirement. They're they're you know, that's sort of their their default. They 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 if you know, someone who's physically impaired and who who needs someone to come to their house in order for them to stay social, we have to pay attention to that in order to honor their right to have adequate social access. Um, and then, uh, and then again, you know, sort of as we move into dependency and old age, it becomes more the default for, for most of us to need someone to come to us, need someone to support us to stay social. If you happen to be, you know, fully able bodied and you know seemingly independent as an adult, then your positive rights are to have adequate opportunities, adequate chances to meet people, to re meet people, to form bonds to have those bonds be protected, not forcibly severed by the state or by third parties. So so there is the, you know, the protection of your interests as opposed to the positive provision of care and support that is your, your positive right.
0: So you start out discussing that there is a distinction between merely surviving and in fact flourishing. What is this right doing if it is Protected, or if it is provided, is it a right to merely survive in terms of a minimum degree of social interaction, or is it a right to flourish?
1: So, human rights are not built to guarantee flourishing. That's that's not their um, that's not their political function. That's not how they're cons. Conceptually specified. They're, they're meant to be about the basics, what's the minimum that we owe to each other. And so the, the human right against social deprivation or the human right to have adequate social access, that will not guarantee you a friend. Um, and in, in my mind, that's that's one of the reasons to stop short of saying there's a right to be loved. And the way being loved is about flourishing. It's about richness. Um, and it's, it would only be if you couldn't lead a minimally decent life without being loved that we could talk about a human right to be loved. Um, now, now, Liao does think that. He takes a slightly stronger view of what human rights are meant to secure. So I use the language of minimally decent. Uh, what makes for a minimally decent human life? He, he talks about what makes for a good human life, which is, which is a higher bar. Um, but if we're focusing on minimally decent, then it's, it's, you know, it's not, uh, we're not in the realm of, of goodness or flourishing where this is just about the basics.
0: You use the example of, um, uh, air to breathe and that there arguably should be a, obviously oxygen is a necessity for human physical life. And it is a... Bare minimum need. But at the same time, as you noted, we haven't really had to think of it as a right that needs protecting or provisioning because there was no problem with scarcity. Is there a problem with scarcity in regard to social interaction?
1: Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) So the yes is that um social resources necessarily rest with people so uh and there's only so many people that any one person can support and care for and be connected with and be intimate with and even know the name of um you know there's a psychologist say that the upper limit of the number of names we can actually hang on to in our minds is about 150 um which is the you know that's the rough and ready number of people who would be in a tribe. And so there may be, you know, sort of part of our, part of our history, part of our ancestry, that, that that may be our typical upper limit. So we're limited in the resources available to support each other, but we're not limited in the attitudes we can take. Uh, we can cultivate an attitude of open-hearted, well-wishing, um, toward everyone, you know that, that sort of state of mind and heart that it doesn't have to be limited. Yeah, and and the way psychologists talk about this is that there's actually a a multi multiplicative effect um, in in loving that it sort of ripples out. It, it benefits, you know, the, sort of it, the sum is greater than the the parts, the whole is greater than the parts, and that you if you sort of send love and warmth and well wishing elsewhere, it, it it expands, it it ripples back, and it and it amplifies. So, so yes, social resources are are limited in that you know we are limited creatures who can only be into so many, but not in terms of our attitude.
0: Beyond, and I want to return to prisons because ultimately that's what you are concluding with is the institutional problems that prisons and solitary confinement present. Seems to me in some ways that's a special case, Um, whereas you've got an institution, public institution, that's enforcing uh, solitary or, um, a solitary life upon somebody. And I'm concerned with more mundane quotidian things like, um, you refer to, for example, the, um, elderly, uh, caregiver in, Can- I believe it was in Canada who, um, had been, or was about to be deported and had been a caregiver for many years for another elderly woman. And can you explain that uh, story and, and how that was? Uh, it became some kind of a call celeb.
1: Yeah. So 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 these these two women they weren't they weren't married they weren't in a in a romantic partnership they were they were lifelong friends and they were they were living in Canada and and um, and the American woman had sort of expired her visa had expired her right to stay had expired and so the Canadian government was about to deport her. And, um, and there was a, there was a big reaction to this uh, that uh, you know here that their relationship somehow didn't have the same pedigree, the same standing that a marriage might have. And uh, so she was actually granted um, three months reprieve on compassionate grounds. And, and I believe that was extended. and the, the stories now dropped out of the headlines. I went and searched for it again and, and couldn't find an update. But um, the, the thought was that, you know, here the state was giving, you know, these women potentially weren't being rendered so, so socially deprived. You know, if they had other contacts and connections, if they were embedded with a broader social circle, then they weren't being put below a minimum level of sufficiency socially. But their most important connection was being severed. And, and that, I think, is, in a way, that's the element of flourishing that the human rights must protect. So, you know, you're, you know someone who's in a sort of a wonderful, happy marriage is living well above the, the, the threshold of, you know, of human rights, brute moral minimum standard. But the, if, if a government were to forcibly sever your marriage, that would be an assault on your human rights. So once you've formed bonds and established bonds, to forcibly sever them is, in a way, to to take advantage of this uh, this, this deep social nature we have uh, to you know to use it against us as a form of punishment or cruelty, and and then we're in the territory of human rights.
0: Well, we arrest people all the time and send them away to prison for years. Um, they are in relationships that are uh, some of which are presumably loving, lifelong, dedicated relationships. Uh, parent-child, siblings, as well as spousal relationships. And the purpose, of course, of the separation is to punish them for the wrong they've done, also to perhaps deprive them of the ability to do future wrongs, uh, commit other crimes, and uh, for obvious deterrent effect. So is the mere nature of arrest and confinement I don't mean solitary confinement, but just simply the separation of somebody who's been convicted, charged, and then later convicted. Is that impinging upon this right that you have
1: been describing? Yes. So, uh, prison officials know that the most powerful carrot and stick they have is people's family, and so there's uh, you know they you can use access to family visits to get the behavior you want. Um, and, and indeed, you can use the threat of going in the isolation wing and the segregation wing to get behavior that you want. Now, in, in my mind, those that access should not be a privilege that can be revoked. It should be a guaranteed claim right you have to have access to the family, not to be housed in a prison hundred miles away from your family—that really makes it difficult for them to visit. Um, you're not not to be denied access to your children. There's this, to my mind, this territory should be off limits as part of punishment methods. And indeed, in in some societies, your punishment is practiced in a way that is much more compatible with retaining our social connections. Um, you know, Norway is one of my favorite examples. That they they have something called weekend prison, where you show up on a Friday evening, you stay in prison over the weekend, you do you know sort of community service work or certain types of um, labor as your part of your contribution, and then you return to your home on Monday. You can keep your job, you can stay connected with your children and your family, far far less um, brutal uh, in terms of its assault on your social connections.
0: Of course, you can anticipate the objections to this. Um, Norway has a distinctly small population; it's very homogeneous, and you compare it to, say, in the modern United States and a nation of three hundred and thirty million, with all of the various stratifications—socioeconomic, uh, cultural, etc.—that the character of the um, violent uh, criminal uh, segment of the society that kind of uh, weekend prison model probably would be uh, infeasible. Do you think that's true? Or do you think that uh, even if it were less feasible that it would still be worth trying in order to, uh, with part of the objective being to try to protect this social right that you're describing?
1: So Anglo-American criminal justice systems tend to be harsher along a variety of measures than European systems. Uh, that you know, there there are offences that would land you in jail in the United States that would not land you in jail in Europe. Um, there are offences where justices have some discretion you know, whether to send you to prison or to assign community service, and in, in, you know more often than not, the Anglo-American systems seem to opt for the harsher responses than more, more milder uh, milder ones. There's also differences in in treatment overall. So in in many European countries. Um, prison guards are required to address people in their custody by their first name, you know, by their formal name, you know, or their chosen name. Whereas um, in in many Anglo-American prisons, you know, they you know, people are referred to as, you know, well, we're moving these bodies from here to there, um, or it's feeding time, rather than we're serving lunch. And, um, and, I've, and I've worked with a couple of prisons in, in the UK that are trying to change their language and that they see that as an important part of moving beyond a very dehumanizing and excessively punitive system. So, you know, instead of having a bin man, you have a maintenance technician. Instead of having a greeter, you have an information ambassador. And that the people in the prison are residents, not prisoners. Now, I think that last term is maybe unnecessary, that you, you are imprisoned, you are a, a prisoner. Your political prisoners, uh, people who are imprisoned for criminal offenses, you are imprisoned as a prisoner. But other labels um, that we tend to use, I, I think we should drop. Uh, you know, th- We should refer to someone as a person who has committed a sexual offense, um, a person who has committed a rape, uh, and that it's much easier to desist when your life isn't reduced to your offense.
0: So in describing the um balance between recognition and protection of social rights that you're describing the right against deprivation. You also describe um, uh, perhaps a a countervailing force, if you will, which is the ability or perhaps even the right to disassociate or dissociate from another. So can you explain the tension here and what, what in fact dissociation means in terms of the way you're describing it or using it?
1: So there's some, uh, Part of um, our our commitment to to liberalism in in many uh, democracies is the idea that we can sort of list on our fingers some core freedoms we have. Um, John Stuart Mill is a a key influential figure in this domain. We have freedom of thought, freedom of expression, um, the freedom to shape our life according to our tastes and interests, freedom of movement, and freedom of assembly and association. Where we have the right to choose the society that is most acceptable to us. That's Mill's line. And uh, that so that includes a freedom to dissociate, a freedom to step back, to retreat into, into life as a hermit, um, you know, to to exit associations when they're not working for you. But in in my view, that freedom to dissociate should not take priority over positive social rights claims or at least not not generally we have to take a a very specific case-by-case approach because we we need someone to step up and take care of associative tasks we need someone to care for every baby and every child that comes into the world and and there's very good evidence that when children are put into institutions they fail to thrive they fail to develop um, that uh, that it's a very stunting privative environment to be raised in an orphanage rather than to be raised in a family. And of course, not all families are perfect and some family settings are privative as well, but very difficult to replicate the conditions you need in an institution um, to, to grow well. So, and, and that's then true across the board. So when someone has an existing claim on you, so when someone's your spouse, I think we, we need to be cautious before saying, okay, well, you know, I have a blanket freedom to to exit. I, you know, if this isn't working for me. My feelings aren't what they used to be. I have a right to leave. I think we can have duties first to look at this connection, you know, to to think, okay, can I, are there things I can do to change how I feel about this relationship? Are there ways I can reinvest? Are there people I can surround myself with who will model a more loving connection with their partner which i might try to adopt. Now of course you know some relationships are pernicious and horrific and and you a know, victim needs to protect themselves needs to be, needs help to exit. Uh, so this isn't a blanket requirement to stay in connections that aren't functioning well but it's it's to stress that we shouldn't be too quick to assume we have an absolute freedom to dissociate.
0: Oh. Obviously, there's uh, philosophy and then there's applied philosophy. And it seems to me that uh, in regard to the right you're describing, the rubber hits the road uh, when you try to figure out how you actually implement these rights and the attendant obligations that you've been describing, whether they are the obligations to continue a relationship or not simply be free to dissociate, as you just described, or the Uh, provision and protection of someone who is claiming in some fashion that or or for whom there is an argument that they are being deprived of some of these social uh, necessities. It seems to me that uh, government, uh, and again, we'll get to the, uh, we'll talk about the prisons kind of separately, but that in general, is this something that would be easily protected or uh, could, is government suited to protecting a su- such a right as this?
1: So there, there's a role for government uh, because h- human rights bring a trinity of duties: to to respect, to protect, and to fulfil. Uh, and again, that's a contribution from from Henry Shue. And the so so governments, you know, the duty to respect starts with what are your own policies for. For, for, for prison, for solitary confinement, for immigration. Uh, you know, are families being held together? Are families being separated? Do children know where their parents are, if they are in fact separated in an immigration facility? Are immigration facilities similar to prisons in this, in this society? In the United States, a lot of corporations Administer both prisons and immigration centers, and they look very similar in how they're in how they're run, how people um, are forced to dress, how how they're treated, how they're fed, how they're housed, and then uh, more generally, um, you know how how is the government. Uh, you know, protecting and fulfilling the rights in terms of ensuring that third parties, like corporations, are not um, depriving people of their social needs; uh, ensuring that care facilities are regulated in ways that attend to people's social needs; ensuring that if there are healthcare providers, uh, healthcare visitors coming for that weekly chat, that it's the same person who comes each week instead of a different person. If you know the person who's receiving the social care, if they're starting over every time. Um, then they share no no history with someone. They have no common story with someone. And in the case of uh, you know in our current context of the of the coronavirus um, and and lockdowns, there's an important question about whether government is paying attention to the social impact. So in the U- in the UK, when the, the during the first lockdown in the spring of 2020, um, the government didn't really pay attention to the fact that people who live in a single person household, people who live alone, need to have some exemption from the requirement that you not interact outside of your house. Um, about Oh, it's about 12% of British people or the people in Britain live in um, a single person household now. And so in, in subsequent iterations of, of the lockdowns, the government has allowed those people to form a bubble with someone else who lives alone. And so that was a, you know that was a necessary refinement in the policy uh, where the government became a, a bit more awake to the social impact of their of their decisions. Another related uh, issue for the coronavirus is is overcrowding. So, you know, if people are required to live 24 hours a day inside their house and their house normally is okay. You know, it's, it's sort of you know has has more people than it has rooms, but it it's all right because people you know they go out to work, they go out to school, they can go to the park, and then suddenly in a lockdown, this is a very different setting. And so you know the the rise in cases of abuse um, within families, some of that's due to people's living arrangements, and so if lockdowns are exceptions, exceptional circumstances, you can deal with these problems in maybe a rough and ready way. But if lockdowns become more common, um, and the thought is that you know pandemics may become more common, then we have to pay attention to how we're looking after housing, um, just what exactly we're asking people to take on when we say you have to stay inside the house for the next few weeks.
0: So finally, I just want to address uh, the source of your title for your book. Um, you quote the inestimable A.A. A. Milne um, with uh, Winnie, an exchange between Winnie the Pooh and uh piglet um this was the source for your title being sure of one Another," being sure of each other when uh who looks back to piglet and he, he says what's wrong essentially and he says i just wanted to be sure of you <laughs> so um it, the uh this notion of being sure of one another it's it's it seems to me that uh what you're hoping for in this book is more than just prison reform it's uh, a recognition of how people are in fact is that right
1: yes so, so much so that I think this goes up you know this carries out into the street as well that we really need those little moments of acknowledgement from strangers um, you know we we need to feel accepted not just within a family but within a broader community within a society and I, I think we're we're appreciating that during this uh, pandemic because we're getting fewer of those little moments of recognition and acknowledgement. And um, I, I maintain that we have a, a duty, maybe not an overriding all things considered duty, but we have a duty to respond to someone when they reach out and want our attention. Um, and you know, so, uh, Western societies the norm lets us get away with ignoring some people, you know, we're, you know, the norm is we're allowed to ignore a homeless person who bids for our attention. Um, but I, I think we, we actually have a duty to acknowledge someone and people who who've endured homelessness, they say the hardest part is feeling invisible. Um, you know, being sick, being cold. It's, it, you know, those are, those are terrible, but it's actually worse to feel like you don't exist and um and so so yes in terms of the the takeaway it's uh it's look much more than you know not just at prison reform and um care facility reform which i think are are necessary but at how we operate uh, as social creatures and to realize the importance that the good we offer each other the, the gift we offer each other um when we are social
0: the book is entitled being sure of each other an essay on social rights and freedoms and we've been joined today by its author, Kimberly Brownlee. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Ian.